This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I am here today with Sylvia Macri and George Hilton to discuss uh, the opportunity for renewables and power markets in sub-Saharan Africa. Sylvia, George, how are you, both of you? Hi, I'm Hill. great, thank you. Yeah, pleasure thank to be on the thanks. podcast today. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm I'm excited to to talk about this. That this has been a um, the, the idea of the opportunity for uh, I guess renewables or power or whatever in, in sub-Saharan Africa has me very curious. And, and as we were talking in preparation for this, you know, the the, the potential analog that, that has me curious is cell phones and, and landlines, where where cell phones um, kind of jumped landlines in, in much of Africa. And as we're looking at opportunities for, call it new forms of energy or for uh, lower carbon electricity or power, I'm curious if, if we have more of a modern uh, evolution w- within Africa or if certain countries uh, are still looking to uh, Western grids as kind of the model. And so I want to kind of frame our conversation today around that. And um, Sylvia, just for, for, for everybody's kind of awareness, Sylvia will be um, you know, representing more, more of the Africa expertise here. And George has a real expertise in batteries and more of the Western or European and uh, U.S. markets. And in case we introduce it, uh, distributed generation, um, just to kind of define it for, for, for listeners who may not be, be aware, is more kind of on-site or localized uh, electricity rather than more of the, the shared grid approach that we're used to, at least I'm used to here in the US. So w- without further ado, Sylvia, can we can you help frame thus the African power market and, and, and how to think about it in terms to, of perhaps things we know? Yeah, thanks, Hill, and thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about this important subject today. Uh, I don't think that the time that we have will be enough to, to cover everything, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. It's, um, it, it, sometimes it, it, it may be considered as a simple, uh, simple to, to describe, but uh, when it comes to, to addressing, to, to addressing the, 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 the real issues, it, uh, it's a different story. Um, I think I wanted to to just uh, give uh, a little bit of you know perspective and, and context to the discussion that we'll, we will be having with uh, with George to get also an understanding of what which countries we're talking about here and uh, and how they compare to other markets that we may be more familiar on a global level. When we talk about Africa, I think when, especially when it comes to electrification problems, we discuss we we were covering. Uh, mostly the sub-Saharan Africa, sub-region of Africa, without accounting for the northern African countries because they have uh, different regions. And uh, we at SP Global, we address that part of the region together with the Middle East. So here, I think that um, we will be discussing issues related to electrification, distributed generation and all that for the sub-Saharan African countries. They are 49 countries with a population of about 1.17 billion people. 
and uh, and I'm giving these two numbers because it's um, when when comparing to other markets, this is quite striking. Uh, looking also at the install capacity of these 49 countries, uh, which is about 150 gigawatts, 150 gigawatts of install capacity. And why is that important? Because if we take into consideration, for example, France, France has about 70 million people. Remember, 1.17 billion in Africa. The install right. capacity is 136 compared to 150. So 49 countries in sub-Saharan Africa have just a little bit more than France's install capacity. And when we and take India, yes. Is there any shared regulatory oversight over those 49 countries? Uh, no, they're they're independent. There is some uh, sub-regional agreements, and um, we, we will discuss a bit uh, about recent um, developments in in exchange and free trade among uh, you know these different countries. But they're not they're they're individual countries. But back again, you know, to 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 give context, when we compare Africa with India, so one country, which is a combination mm -hmm. of different states, but still one country. Then we have India with the 390 gigawatts of installed capacity. So it's three times Africa. One country, India, has three times the installed capacity of 49 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And that is important to, to keep in mind when we, we talk about this. I think one, one other problem uh, that Africa, sub-Saharan Africa in this context uh, has is the low electrification rate, meaning mm -hmm. that 50%, which is about 500 million people, have no access to electricity. They don't have any regular, stable and consistent supply of electricity, which has inevitably an impact on uh, the economies of these countries, on the uh, quality uh, of life of these people. Uh, so when we talk about electricity and power, we don't talk about an isolated problem. We talk about a problem that has consequences on different levels um, of, of these, uh, these countries and, and people's life. What a, a problem or an opportunity. I mean, I, I think particularly with all that's going on in technology and power and electricity that given the underserved market of those or, or 49 markets, or 49 countries, there, there's huge opportunity to, to perhaps do things differently. So, so, so maybe to, to bring in George, I mean, uh, given all that what Sylvia said, I, I know you do a, a lot of work around batteries and, and have um, more work within the, the, the European um, and more developed markets. Um, so so how, how should we, given what Sylvia, Sylvia has just explained to us, how, how should we look at more mature markets um, as not necessarily an analog, but, but as a comparison to that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really kind of, the, the, the energy system in Africa, I guess, is uh, almost entirely completely different to what we have in Europe, the US, etc. And the way that we're going to have to think about decarbonizing that or carbonizing it, um, uh, to say a word that doesn't get said very often, mm -hmm. um, is entirely different to the way that we're thinking about European and US and developed grids. So I think one of the big reasons behind that is around the level of demand. So uh, in all these countries, Sylvia was explaining it really well there, there's basically next to no electricity demand today because so much of the population doesn't have access to electricity. So the in, in the West and in Europe, the question is, how do we decarbonize demand? Whereas in Africa, the question is entirely different. It's how do we increase demand mm -hmm. and ensure that we can do that in a low carbon way or in a or not necessarily in a low carbon way, but in a kind of sustainable and 
uh, equitable way. And is that, I mean, so, so when, when we're thinking about more of the, the Western areas where, where we live, y'all are in Europe and I'm in the US, the, the demand is there because we've got all these things that we need to, to plug in. In theory, the demand is there in, in Africa, or at least the, the desire is there in Africa. What types of hurdles, I mean, what, what are the hurdles that one is looking at to, in, in a sense, create the demand? Yeah, I, I think it's super closely linked to economic development. I mean, if I think of my mm -hmm. own life, you know, I've got a job, I work from home, I need to power my laptop. I've, I've got an electric car, I need to drive that around. Um, I've got uh, a few rooms in my house and they need lights, they need heating, etc. In parts of Africa, that's not the case because economic development hasn't happened as quickly. And so the that economic development needs to happen. And with that, obviously, we will see increasing uh, electricity demand. Um, but with or without economic development, people want to be able to turn on their lights at night. Right? Well, I, I guess it's a chicken and egg situation, <laughs> right? Because the economic development happens with electricity availability, with power availability, and, and vice versa. So yeah, the availability of power helps uh, uh, the, the normal uh, industrial um, operation, but also it, it helps the consumption or the use of more energy intensive appliances, as uh, you know, Georgia was, mm -hmm. was saying. Uh, we have uh, several households in Africa uh, where they have the, the basic appliances that would uh, recharge a phone or would, um, you know, have light uh, for, for a certain period of time in the, in the house. But they don't have uh, elaborated, sophisticated appliances like we have in, the, in, in our homes. And this happens, again, because there is an availability of power, but also because these people cannot afford to pay right. for more power. So that's, you know, why it's a chicken and egg situation. And so, are how should we look at it, Sylvia? I mean, are, are each should we be looking at each of these forty nine different countries as its its own call it opportunity or people? I mean, I guess South Africa I think has um, is one of the, the higher countries in terms of uh, electrical coverage or, or power capacity. Yeah, I think that that is an, indeed um, something we didn't uh, specify at the beginning. There are 30, 49 countries, but uh, South Africa, in terms of its own capacity, accounts for 40% of the total. So, and it's the largest power market at the moment. And Nigeria is the second largest, although it's uh, it has a much lower installed capacity. Nigeria is the first, um, even accounting for North Africa, uh, Nigeria is the, the first uh, largest economy in, in Africa and South Africa the second. So, no, the, the, the quick answer to, to your question is no, we, we shouldn't look at them as, as a single entity, like a, with, with one solution for all of them altogether. But each and every country has a different way of, uh, of solving its its problems when it comes to uh, electricity and uh, availability, electrification, grid reliability, and and so on and so forth. So can you go ahead? Sorry. Uh, so yes, I mean when uh, I think they all have a similar problem. Uh, I think that 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 problem is grid reliability. But reasons mm -hmm. why uh, these countries have grid reliability problems may be different from one another. When you mentioned Nigeria, and when we were talking yesterday, George brought up the idea of, uh, and he introduced it, the term carbonization uh, into our call today, but Nigeria is, is obviously a major oil producer, and a lot of these countries are, call it, blessed with the resource curse of having a lot of 
fossil fuels that uh, could help generate uh, revenues for, for the country. How, how, George, or should we think about that as either an enabler or a hurdle, or a hurdle of some of the, the, the power demand situation? We can't ignore like the moral difficulties around fossil fuel um, extraction and um, combustion today. But on the other hand, all the solutions to uh, decarbonize grids or to, to produce low carbon power have supply chains that exist today. Um, and none of the value that sits within those supply chains lies in Africa. The majority of the supply chains for solar and for batteries all sits within within China. And so if we're to say to these countries, or if these countries are to heavily move towards those technologies, then it restricts the amount of wealth growth that they mm -hmm. can have because of that. Um, and the alternative for them is to um, kind of develop their own internal markets around fossil fuels, which would be much more economically beneficial for the, com the country. So it's an incredibly difficult um, problem for them all. And um, this, I'm not sure what the solution looks like. May I say, Hill, that uh, I mean, we've been talking for about, well, for a few minutes now, but we haven't mentioned the energy transition yet. Which right. Is, uh, it's quite interesting, right? We've been uh, talking around it, but uh, but we didn't really mention the, the word that everybody is talking about these days. And, uh, and I think... We, we, we've mentioned it, it is the real buzzword, but but it, we've mentioned a lot of things around, around. The energy mm -hmm. transition, right? And energy transition is a very clean and safe and comfortable word, but but it means, you know, five different things to four different people. Yeah, exactly. And uh, just to continue on the, the thought that, that Georgia was sharing with us, um, I think it is a big problem. Why energy transition now is, is the, the expression that we may want to include in, in, in the, this conversation that we're having is because many countries uh, have oil and gas resources. You mentioned Nigeria, but there are also a few other smaller ones have resources and they, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, they want to use them, obviously. And um, it would be uh, difficult to not, as, as again, George was, was saying, it would be difficult not accounting for those resources because at the same time, uh, they, they need to diversify their energy mix. Um, and, uh, you know, work towards this energy transition path that the, the, the world uh, has embraced. Uh, at the same time, their base is so low. Uh, they have still so much, uh, so many people that don't have access to electricity that renewables only, so clean energy only cannot solve the problem. And um, for economic growth, for industrialization, you cannot just rely on uh, clean energy resources. Also, given, again, as George was saying, uh, given that uh, manufacturing capacity is still not available in the region and they're still relying so much on, on imports. So you, you wrote a paper recently that, that I was looking at and it mentioned um, if I interpret it correctly, it, it kind of a, a distributed generation already where people are using um, miners and whatnot are, are using oil or gas in a distributed generation format in order to power their those operations. Is that, are we seeing um, that shift more into, are, are those miners or, or, or those companies bringing in cleaner technologies, lower carbon technologies um, to, to power their electricity needs, or, or are they content to use the fossil fuels nearby 
Well, the um, this this shift is uh, is very much something that we're seeing uh, happening in the past few months. Before cost, contract types, all all these uh, various elements did not were not a driver for particularly many companies to use the renewable power their facilities, which often are in um, remote locations that are uh, off grid, so they're not connected to the central network, so they have to. Uh, rely on their own generation assets for for their operations, which usually require for 24-hour availability of power. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is indeed a distributed distributed generation in that sense. So for industrial operations is something that we're seeing more and more happening in in sub-Saharan Africa. When we talk about distributed generation across, among uh, residential and small commercial customers, that's a different story. It's it's more of a trend, and and it has been there for for a while, and it has been used for, to electrify. Uh, the population, but it's true that for for industrial industrial um, companies, so this is replacing displacing diesel oil with mm-hmm. uh, hybrid um, systems that would in, include the solar and battery. Uh, that becomes more and more of an option for for them. Yeah, I just I just want to add here that the um, the economics around solar and storage really depend on what your displacing and what you need to use less when you install them and so that's why this distributed generation aspect is one of the fastest growing in Africa is because often they are the existing generation is a diesel generator and this is in a really can be in a really rural place where it's quite Mm -hmm. difficult to get diesel there and so it has inherently has a very high cost solar and storage on the other hand whilst it can be expensive compared to gas turbines in the West or um, large-scale thermal generation. When you compare it against the diesel generators that are often in these rural places, the economics look much more positive, and that, that's why we've seen growth recently, I would say. And who's the customer of that? Is it What's the setup? What's the business model for those areas of distributed generation that, that are working? So what, what you need for all of these kind of distributed generation areas or microgrids um, mm. is a is a source of demand. That's kind of the critical thing. And so it's really any source of demand in Africa could benefit from these if the, if it's not connected to the grid. What we're seeing at the moment is lots of these are around mines, uh, particularly okay. gold mines. Um, that's seen a lot of uh, growth in the last six months, I think, that Sylvia is referring to. Um, but it's not trickling into the residential customer in the way that distributed generation is domestically, domestically in, in, in the U.S. And I, I was walking my dog yesterday and one of my neighbors is putting solar on top of his house. Um, another neighbor down the street did the same thing. And that seems to be the big opportunity in the West is, is for people to get off the grid rather because I guess you know they, they've got or well, we've got the things we need to plug in mm-hmm. uh, within Africa. It's the industrial customer yeah yeah i think so i think and the difficulty here with using these kind of distributed resources to power like residential homes i I think it does happen in some small areas and where it's funded by external sources then you can build the capacity but Mm -hmm. to do it purely on an economic basis you know building assets that are selling maybe one dollar of electricity per month to a home 
it's incredibly difficult to build a business case on that when the level of demand in homes is so low. And so, yeah, we're going back to that kind of chicken and the egg. How do you, right. how do you build that infrastructure to allow people to increase their demand when there isn't the money and there isn't the demand to to foster and to drive building new infrastructure. So that I, that I think is the is the trick. But having said that, the development banks have done some great work in this area and there are lots of really um, exciting and innovative projects that are making quite a big difference too. So. Yeah, and um, I think we, we also should understand that, um, you know, note here that uh, we're talking about completely different uh, systems and uh, business models and uh, mm-hmm. in terms of size and in terms of, uh, you know, as, as George was saying, demand of, of this uh, different customers type. When we, we talk about mining companies in, and the large industrials, uh, we are talking about projects that are at least 50 to 100 megawatt and this is what we've seen in the past six months mostly but let's say in the past year more and more so these projects are distributed in the sense that they are not centralized or connected to the central network but in terms of size that they cannot be identified as distributed generation assets although okay. you know, the, the final objective is, is to to provide power to someone or something that is uh, remote when it comes to distributed generation across residential and small commercial customers, then again, we need to differentiate between uh, those residential customers which have a, a higher income and can afford systems like your neighbor in the US. Uh, and then you have the smaller home system, so assets that are much smaller and uh, they're still uh, relying on the solar technology. Sometimes battery, if it's a centralized system that, uh, you know, uh, power and entire powers an entire village. But uh, the, the single, the, the unit, which is the household consumption, is very, very small just because the income of these people is much lower and they don't have uh, the power purchase. Uh, that that uh, you know your neighbors or our neighbors mm-hmm. may, may have. So there are different levels, uh, and to all of them and each of them, we we are talking about different business models. And um, in some cases, you can rely on the solar asset by itself, which could be the the case of the solar home system, for example. But when we go to those larger assets uh, that would power uh, a mining company's facility, then the solar technology on its own cannot do the job and this is where you know we we need to add a storage component or hybridize existing uh, diesel based generation assets in order to to be able to to power that that facility for 24 hours and not only when the sun shines right so how should we look at this? Maybe we could offer some kind of some case studies or some examples in, in terms of those projects or those countries where we're seeing either real life action or existing infrastructure. You, you know, reliability has come up a few times. And I think uh, your paper mentioned, what was it, Namibia that, that has a lot of hydropower that is in a drought? There are a few. I mean, there, there is uh, Zambia, Ghana. Zambia. The, you know, hydropower generation is a is a large component of many of the uh, countries' energy mix in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, yeah, I mean, reliability or lack of reliability is due to the fact that with droughts there is less power, and uh, with mm-hmm. less power there is less uh, generation from from uh, hydropower plants. 
And are those countries the ones that we should be looking to for kind of first mover? At, you know, we, we talk about chickens and eggs. I mean, if and I don't know whether I'm talking about chickens or eggs here, but if I'm looking at a country with somewhat of a power system, do we see more of the modern technologies coming into that system rather than something totally greenfield, uh, given George's comments about demand? I would start maybe with countries with a regulatory framework in place. Mm-hmm. Because an investor doesn't go where there is too much of an uncertainty, too much risk. So I think that, um, as, as we said at the beginning, right, then they have more or less the same problem, but the reasons are different. And also the way these countries are addressing the problem is different. And uh, some, some countries like South Africa, they did, uh, they are striving to create this regulatory framework that would allow private investors to uh, invest on independent uh, projects that would help mining companies. So I think that, you know, providing uh, a clear environment and clear and stable environment for an investor, that that is important. And yes, so South Africa is uh, one of those cases. That's one of the big ones. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think I think that kind of, when we're thinking about new technologies here, like energy storage, pairing solar with storage, one of the problems we have in Europe and the US actually is around investor confidence in those technologies. Mm-hmm. And so how do you then install those same technologies in Africa where there aren't the same regulatory regimes and where there isn't the same level of kind of... Um, in in the UK, for instance, we have Ofgem, which is the regulator for the electricity market, and we have a full-blown electricity market and specific revenue streams for these assets that can build up and build a business model and you can look at that ahead of time and there's lots of information for investors I think but in Africa I think the picture is completely different and that's why we need the development banks are playing such a large role in the in the rollout of this these new technologies because they essentially provide that certainty for the finance uh, for the financiers Without them, I don't think we would. It would be a much more difficult place for new technologies. How about the the, the majors? I mean, that if we, if we looked at oil and gas as kind of an analog, that oil and gas companies, major oil and gas companies, have history of going in to countries where there was an underdeveloped petroleum sector and help to advise around regulatory frameworks. Are we seeing that or, or may we see that from either super majors who are now getting into power like Shell or from these quote unquote green super majors like the NLs and the next era, some of these big electric companies? Is that something that's being discussed or seen? That- well, in oil and gas companies, uh, we we haven't seen really much, you know, co- collaboration with local players. There are some projects in the pipeline, uh, Yenai uh, with uh, Sonangore in Angola, mm-hmm. just to give you an example. But those are projects that uh, are limited in size and often uh, they, they target uh, oil and gas facilities. So they're not eventually projects that would electrify the, the, the whole country. Uh, they may happen maybe later on when they, they expand this uh, this portfolio. But in, like so far, we haven't seen a major contribution of oil and gas companies to that type of projects. 
it's a different story when it comes to you know utilities and independent mm-hmm. power producers that's uh, we've seen a lot of uh, like non-regional companies let's call them because it's not only western we also have chinese companies investing in, in renewable projects so we are seeing these uh, these type of players are trying to uh, find uh, their their place also in mm-hmm. this part of the industry that is uh, uh, taking off um, we've seen uh, these companies being, you know, participating in tenders uh, in in these different countries, but uh, but of course, I mean, uh, those are two different types of, uh, of of companies and players. Sure. And, and George, you mentioned innovation a second ago, but I mean, do, do you see the innovation being led by smaller startups, or is this the domain of some of these larger multinationals or, or large companies? I think we're actually in a position where, well, in a it, in a time frame where for the energy transition to take place, much of the innovation we need has already happened. You know, we already have solar panels, we already have a lithium ion battery, and we already have wind turbines. To really deeply decarbonize the electricity networks, that's all we need. So the innovation's happened. And so the companies dealing with all those technologies are, are getting larger and larger and having a more and more global spread um, at the moment. I just want to touch on one thing though about the kind of you mentioned about oil and gas companies going into a certain country and helping that country to develop i think that idea is an interesting one uh, and it doesn't necessarily translate to the kind of post energy transition world sylvia well we were all at sarah week a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. ago and one of the one of the quotes that i remember i'm i'm probably going to butcher it and I'm not going to get it right but it was that um, a molecule essentially of hydrocarbons you can dig out the ground you can ship it around the world and you can store it for as long as you want but an electron that has been generated by a solar or wind turbine we you can't move from one side of the US to the other and it has to be used straight away so Mm -hmm. if that kind of paradigm of an oil and gas company coming in and helping to develop doesn't necessarily sit with that kind of post energy transition world of development having to happen near to demand because we can't transfer electrons globally. I think that's, yeah, that's likely to be one of the reasons why we might see less large company involvement in Africa developing, stepping in in the way that you suggested, Hill. In spite of the experience dealing with regulatory frameworks that that those localized issues are, are a big enough challenge to require a different core competency. Yeah, well, I think that kind of exacerbates it, right? Because yeah. a solar farm on the east side of Africa has absolutely zero chance of being able to deliver electrons to the west side of Africa. That's just not going to be an option. And yeah. so if we're looking for large scale solutions, they're kind of more piecemeal and less developed regulatory framework is definitely a, a, a hinder to that for sure. But let me add also that the problem may be even more complex because uh, it's not just moving from west to east or east to west of the region. It's, it's in most cases, these countries don't have the grid capacity within the country itself. So, you know, transmission and distribution grids uh, are in, in, in uh, most of the case, most of the cases in a, in a poor shape. Um, mm-hmm. They're not sufficiently developed. They need enhancement, and uh, enhancement or expansion of a grid requires time, requires money, and that's where uh, distributed generation uh, solutions may be um, a faster uh, solution to the short-term problem of a supply gap, uh, because 
and, and well, there is a debate among the you know uh, people in in, in the industry. Uh, we should uh, build uh, the distributed generation assets first, so we target the population over there, or mm-hmm. we we need to um, channel the the funds towards the utilities uh, in order to expand the grid. And uh, sometimes the solution is somewhere in between, so the distribution asset can help you in the short term, but eventually, if you want to electrify the whole country, you will have to uh, enhance your your grid system. So it's it's very difficult and uh, complicated. Yeah, as I told you, like the time that we have today is not enough to cover. Which, yeah, so I, yeah, I think that is clear that we'll we'll have to pick this up uh, in further detail, hopefully on a on a future podcast. But before I let both of you all go, though, I'd like to ask, you know, if, if we're thinking about these chickens and eggs, if each of you had to pick one or two things that that needed to happen before we get the chicken or before we get the egg or before we get the chicken and the egg, what are the things that you would look for, and more specifically, is there a part um, or a country that we should look to see at first? George? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very tough question. I think, um, well, I think we've been fairly downbeat on the podcast, actually, uh, and there are some uh, there are some reasons for hope. And one of those is that when you look at distributed generation, solar with the addition of batteries is a really, really cost competitive option uh, and it's zero carbon. And that could be a really useful tool for electrifying rural communities in Africa. I think that's a really hopeful and positive kind of solution there. And so what would be great and what I'd hope for for the region is um, subsidies, external investment and kind of, yeah, the key is, I think, is external money coming into the region to fund solutions like that. And there are examples of that happening, which is great, mm-hmm. and, and it would be great to see more of them. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Georgia that we've been <laughs> quite somber like, to add uh, the podcast, but it's true that uh, there are a lot of highlights uh, across the region. And like in terms of electrification, like uh, Kenya adopted a non-grid and off-grid approach to electrify the population, and, uh, and the country managed to double the electricity access in just a few years. So it's one of those uh, bright examples of, uh, you know, they, they rely on a lot, relied a lot on uh, solar distributed and generation assets to help the, the local population on the off-grid system. And then they tried to expand the grid to whichever demand was close enough to the network. So there are examples that can be used by other countries to um, to try and solve the problem in the short term. Definitely, I, I agree with Georgia that um, there, there is need for, for funds, but uh, acknowledging from a local perspective uh, the, the problem, the existence of the problem, and uh, acknowledging the solutions that are out there uh, is already a big step. And, and now I think that uh, all the different uh, stakeholders uh, locally uh, are aware that they need to create um, a friendly environment for investment uh, mm-hmm. and, and that is already a, a big step uh, forward. All right, so it sounds like George is saying capital and you're saying regulatory framework. Uh, I'm going to go with a third option, though, though I wasn't asked. I'm going to, to, to interject my uh, opinion, but I think an innovative business model. That, 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 that there's surely there's a way to do this and surely there's a way to do this in a way that creates value for the customer and the provider of electricity. Um, but, and, and, yeah, go ahead. 
No, but let me say something, Hale, because I think since Georgia mentioned Tira Week, uh, what we heard at Tira Week was also that the money is there. It yeah. was more on a global level, right? So they said the money is there. We just cannot find the right projects. And this is a big problem in, in, in Africa. So creating good projects, because good projects attract investment. So you're right, absolutely, business model, uh, innovative business model that would be more tailored to the local reality, absolutely. And But all the, the, the different things together, they would uh, have created that perfect or at least a good enough project that can move forward just because of the investment is there is just waiting for the opportunity. Yeah, if it were easy, everybody would do it. <laughs> 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 all right, well, Sylvia, George, thank you both. Um, I, I, I found this conversation super interesting and uh, hope to come back as, as more as more develops. Thanks. Thanks, Hill. Great chat. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.